Tolkien loved the Norse sagas, and they all ended in despair, desolation, doom, destruction, and death. There are no happy endings. It's just ghastly. They all end in in just terrible situations. And so that's the kind of story he he loved. It worked on him. Gave gave him a pang. Lewis liked the happy ending. And so with The Hobbit, he does something different from what he does in all his other stories. The Hobbit goes there to the end of the world on the great quest, and he's changed in the course of the journey and comes back a different Hobbit. I think Tolkien got the story from Lewis, who was writing, who had written The Pilgrim's Regress and was working on his allegory of love while they were meeting every morning and telling each other what they were writing and what they were working on. That's, we don't have a smoking gun, but we do have the smell of gunpowder. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College, and with me today, I have Dr. Harry Lee Poe, author of a three-volume biography of C.S. Lewis, which includes Becoming C.S. Lewis, The Making of C.S. Lewis, and The Completion of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Poe, thank you for agreeing to join me on the show. I'm really excited to have you. Well, thank you. I'm excited about being with you. Hal Poe serves as the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, where he's taught a course on C.S. Lewis for almost 20 years. Besides the books we're talking about here, he's the author of The Inklings of Oxford and C.S. Lewis Remembered, as well as many articles and chapters on Lewis. And he's also written 20 books and authored about 300 articles. He writes extensively on how the gospel intersects with culture, science, and religion, as well as the integration of faith and learning. He leads the Inklings Fellowship and its retreats in Montreat and Oxford, and is also a frequent speaker at universities, conferences, churches, and libraries on Lewis and the Inklings. So this is really how the most comprehensive and authoritative biography I'm aware of about Lewis. It's also been really enjoyable to read. I'd like to talk just a little bit at the top of the show about the process, your process of of writing these books. How did you become interested in writing this biography? Well, I had not planned to write a biography, much less a three-volume biography. And the first volume focuses on Lewis's adolescence, which I thought had been neglected the the there's a number of fine biographies of Lewis, but it's just the problem of of page count. And most publishers don't give you enough pages to say everything you want to say and examine everything that might be of interest. And so I thought, I think there's a story here to be told, especially since Lewis devoted the overwhelming majority of the pages of Surprised by Joy to his early years. In fact, that's the 
the subtitle of the book. He really does see his early years as formative for him. But I didn't start off planning to write a story of the young Lewis. I started off with one of those whimsical thoughts. I wonder what Lewis liked to eat. I think I was planning an event for the Inklings Fellowship, and we were thinking about the menu. And I thought, well, let's see what if we can have a Lewis meal. But I couldn't think of anything specific that he ever said about what he liked to eat. He talked a lot about the fact that he liked eating. Um, and so I thought, well, the, the thing to do would be to go through his letters and see if he ever mentions a meal to anybody. And so I started with those earliest letters as a child. It was not until 1914 he went to live with W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was going to prime him and get him ready for the Oxford entrance exams, specifically for a scholarship. And the first morning he came down to breakfast, Mrs. Kirkpatrick, who was also Irish, like, like Lewis, had prepared what Lewis called good old Irish soda bread. Hmm. And one thing Lewis loved was hot bread and butter. And who doesn't? But by the, that point, he was almost 16 years old. He was just a, a couple of months shy of 16. And by the time he was 16, I realized Lewis had formed so many of his basic preferences that would see him all through his life, the things he liked, the things he didn't like, his pleasures and his agonies. And I thought there might be a story there. So that's how I happened to write the first book. Now, the first book just took him through the beginning of, of World War I, and he wasn't a Christian at that point. And I thought, oh, golly, it sort of leaves you hanging. So I asked the publisher, Crossway, if they would like let me do a second book to at least get him saved and uh, go from the end of World War I to the end of World War II, because that was when he went from being an atheist to the leading Christian apologist of the 20th century. And uh, some of his most important books in terms of, of his apologetics were, were written during the war. And Crossway said, we will let you write volume two if you agree to write volume three. Hmm. And so that's how I happened to write a three-volume biography of C.S. Lewis, purely accidental. Wow. How much time did you take writing this? I mean, this is well, this is quite a feat. It's, there are two answers. It took me about 45 years to write the biography, and it took about three years. Hmm. So I, I first got interested in Lewis when I was in seminary. Well, I'd never heard of him until I was in seminary. And I read The Mere Christianity when I was a master's student. And I did not read the Chronicles of Narnia until the summer of 1979. I was a PhD student getting ready to go to Oxford. And oh, I wow. thought, oh, well, maybe I'll see what these things are about that mm -hmm. everybody keeps talking about. So I read one volume a night for a week and I was hooked at that point. So I, I, I spent that fall doing research at Regents Park College, which is part of Oxford University, studying English church history, specifically the Puritan period. Hmm. But that's also when I 
made the rounds of all the inkling sites. And Humphrey Carpenter's book on the inklings had just recently come out. And so I, in fact, I didn't know about it until I got home. And then I read it and and put together the places I had been. And I didn't <laughs> realize the Eaglin child shares a common wall with Regents Park College. So oh, really? Right there the whole time. Wow. <laughs> so, um, but that what that was the beginning, and as as you said, my primary interest I, I, I am a an ordained minister. My my concern is the intersection of the gospel and culture. I believe that God has placed a question in every human heart and in every culture that only the gospel answers. And our task as Christians is to listen for the question. The Holy Spirit will guide us in answering the question. But it, the big thing is to listen for the question. So most of my work is focused on that, understanding the questions that non-Christians are asking and, and then addressing those questions. Well, along the way, I realized that that Lewis had something to say about just about everything I was writing about. So every book that I wrote had Lewis in it somewhere commenting on on what I was writing about. So I'd I'd done a lot of work on Lewis incidentally, and I wrote a good bit about Lewis, but not for Lewis journals. Lewis journals are aimed at an audience that's interested in Lewis, whereas my articles on Lewis tended to be for people who were interested in something else that Lewis spoke to. So I've done articles for science and religion journals, theology journals, preaching journals, ministry journals, all sorts of, of other places, rather than specifically the, the several Lewis and Inklings journals. So that's how I got into it. In 1998, I was asked to lead a seminar on apologetics in a postmodern world and for the C.S. Lewis Summer Institute in Oxford and Cambridge. And while I was there, Chuck Colson was on the program as one of the plenary speakers. He sat in on my seminars and wound up endowing the academic chair I hold, the, the Charles Colson Chair of Faith and Culture. But also out of that, those two weeks, I was invited by the C.S. Lewis Foundation to join their board and become the program director for the C.S. Lewis Summer Institute, which I did for 2002, 2005, and 2008. So I was heavily in, involved with the, the Lewis world and started teaching a course on Lewis about that time. So it's been a little over 20 years now that I've, I've taught a regular course on Lewis. So that's how it was developing. There were things I thought needed to be done. A number of people who knew Lewis as students were still alive in that first decade of this century. And it seemed, I was interested, of course, in the faith and learning question. Did Lewis have any influence on his academic discipline? We know he had a great influence as a Christian apologist, but that wasn't what he did for a living. Right. And so did he, did he have any impact on the study of English literature, the teaching of English literature. And so I started researching that and meeting people and discovered he had an enormous influence. His student, Derek Brewer, became the master of Emmanuel College in Cambridge. 
Dr. Brown became, Brown Patterson became the dean of Sewanee, the University of the South, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's an old prestigious Southern University. But all sorts of people had very important chairs throughout British universities and, and were taking a an approach to the study of literature that Lewis advocated and thus sort of held the ground. So I wound up publishing a little book with their stories, C.S. Lewis Remembered. Hmm. So an, a number of stories about Lewis as a teacher, which has become an important resource for people doing biographical work on Lewis. And so one thing led to another, and, and here I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is really the the amount of research that this seems to have involved. I, I don't want to... Yeah, I don't want to say that other biographers necessarily did less research, but for everything you say in here, you have a letter or, you know, some sort of primary source, it, it seems like. When did you decide that, I guess, I guess, number one, how, how would you say this is different from other biographies of Lewis that have been okay. undertaken? And well, how did you decide to do it this way? Well, the, the 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 big thing is that Crossway gave me more pages. Okay. And so the big difference between my biography and all the others is that I have more pages and can tell more of the story because some fine biographies have been have been written. Right. But there is a tradition to telling Lewis's story. And it began with his brother, Warney, who wrote a memoir when he published that first edition of Lewis's letters, which was a slim volume. And then Roger Lancelin Green, who was a good friend of Lewis, was really Lewis's encourager in writing the Chronicles of Narnia and was a fine writer himself. And when he and his wife went with Joy and Jack to, to Greece, Green and Hooper wrote a biography together and so that was the first full biography, I think. And that sort of established the tradition of, of the stories you tell and, and, and what you say. Then the next, I think, really important biography was George Sayers' biography, Jack. And I, I've always loved that biography. But, but again, Sayers, George Sayer, as opposed to Dorothy L. Sayers, Sayer knew Lewis very well. He was his student, and then he was a close friend. And Lewis would spend his vacations every year with George Sayer and his wife, Moira, in in Malvern, where, where Sayer was a teacher of English at the college Lewis despised, Malvern <laughs> College. There's irony there somewhere. So, so it is as much memoir as it is biography, hmm. which doesn't require the same kind of research because you know the story, only it's a story from your personal perspective. The next important biography is one that many of us who love Lewis really don't like, but it's an important biography, A.N. Wilson's mm -hmm. biography. Wilson had become an unbeliever and was sort of poking holes in in Lewis. But oddly, Wilson uh, really does the best job of discussing Lewis's scholarly work and mm. really does a better job of that than all of those who, who loved Lewis. He's He really does a fine job there. 
Hmm. Uh, but he's he's I think made a mistake of and, and was strongly criticized by Sayer for misquoting Sayer at one point. Sayer spoke to the C.S. Lewis Society in Oxford about on the topic of Wilson's <laughs> misuse of Sayer. And Sayer also relied on an interview with Mrs. Moore's daughter, Maureen, who lived at the Kilns with Lewis and the rest of the, the, the household until she got married during World War II. Uh, so about 20 years, she knew him very well. But Wilson interviewed her when she was pretty advanced, had a pretty advanced state of dementia. Hmm. And the there's a full video interview that Lyle Dorset did with her in the it must have been in the late 1970s or early 80s, at which point it's obvious that she's 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 really drifting mm -hmm. and can't remember things. And she says a number of things that even the most person most casually acquainted with Lewis will say, well, that's not right. And yeah. so. He builds his whole argument that Lewis and Mrs. Moore were, were in, having an affair on a comment that Maureen made in this advanced state of dementia. Mm -hmm. She came home from church one day and her mother fussed at her. And so they must have been having an affair. You know, that's, uh, that's it. So in 20 years, if wow. that's all the evidence you've got that her yeah. mother and Liz were having an affair. That's pretty flimsy evidence. I mean, honestly, for this, in terms of this biography that, that you've written, that was one of the bombshells for me because I'd always just understood from other people who talked about Lewis that Lewis and Janie Moore were having some sort of relationship and, and it maybe turned into more of a conventional mother-son thing when she got yeah. older after he after he had become a christian or whatever else but but yeah just your just you know you're you're sort of questioning that and saying well there's no yeah. real evidence for this yeah and that's that's the thing and I, I in the early part of the biography when she's first introduced i i indicate it's entirely possible it's entirely possible that they had an affair. Mm. And if so, I would say it probably happened by 1920. But you look at their schedule and the housing arrangements, the house was full of people. They always had at least two servants and family members always there. Well, you've, you've read the biography, so <laughs> you're familiar. It was a madhouse. Right. Absolute madhouse. And the idea that nobody else would have known is, is just it's it's highly improbable to me. It's possible. It mm -hmm. is possible. And recently it came to light that before he died, Walter Hooper said that Owen Barfield had told him before Barfield died that Lewis and Mrs. Moore had an affair. And that's you know, secondhand, third hand, possible. But the problem is that Barfield got increasingly unreliable in his old age. Mm -hmm. He made statements like Lewis had no historical perspective. And yeah. anyone who's read his his Cambridge inter inaugural lecture knows Lewis had 
a profound historical right. perspective. Right. And if you've read the allegory of love or preface to paradise laws, you know, his scholarly work, you know, he had an incredible historical perspective, but nonetheless, Bar Barfield would make statements like that. And usually it was when Lewis disagreed with Barfield's theology. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's possible, but you, 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 made the, the the point yourself there's no evidence for it right other right. than everybody knows what right to be you know it's just gossip by any other name yeah and so i i tried to avoid the gossip in in this biography and work on the on the uh, the primary sources now alistair mcgrath uh, wrote the first biography that really had access to all of the letters and as well as the Lewis's diary. And so he explodes several misconceptions. For instance, Lewis had a terrible, terrible, terrible sense of time. He had historical perspective, but he wasn't preoccupied with, did it happen in 1950 or did it happen in 1948? Can't right. And so in Surprised by Joy, he said that he became a theist in Trinity term 1929. And going through the letters, McGrath couldn't make it work. Hmm. Yeah. And I know exactly what he's talking about because I had, had done just a couple of years earlier a little book on the Inklings. It's a coffee table book, gorgeous photography, but text is, is brief. But I couldn't make the dates work. And I there I was still bound by the tradition. So, you know, Lewis said it was 1929. It had to be 1929, but I can't figure it out. And McGrath says, well, you couldn't figure it out because it happened in 1930. <laughs> that's, that's what the primary evidence, Lewis himself in his letters, it probably happened in late January 1930. He wrote, he wrote letters to Arthur Greaves and Owen Barfield and his old friend Hamilton Jenkin describing his belief in God, that it had just happened. And so you, you go with the primary evidence. And so my, my approach yeah. in this was really to start over and not look at the other memoirs. I, I couldn't strike them from my mind. I knew what they had done, but I, I just decided to go through the, the primary material and build a story that way. Yeah. You manage here to be incredibly objective but at the same time, it doesn't read like it has no personality, right? You you insert plenty of you know plenty of places where you're, where you're kind of like I understood what I understand what Lewis was going through here. I understand mm -hmm. what he means by this from my personal experience. And yet at the same time, it's so well backed up, well supported by by letters, by by primary documents that it really has an authority and an ethos to it that, that yeah, that, that comes across so clearly. Well, thank you. And I, I think I hoped what would happen would be that that readers would then get interested in looking through the letters themselves. They make fascinating reading. Right. And yeah. to and to go to Lewis's works, not just mere Christianity and screw tape letters in the Chronicles or the science fiction trilogy, but some of his lesser known things. And I, right. I hope, hope readers will, will see how they all connect. Uh, Lewis, Lewis had an incredible mind and, and everything connects. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that, that brings up one of the questions I was thinking about asking you. People do tend to separate in their minds Lewis's scholarly works and his creative or popular works, if they even know about the scholarly works, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's tough to resist the temptation to think of them as very different sorts of things. But one of the fascinating points you make in the making of C.S. Lewis is that in many ways, his first scholarly work, The Allegory of Love, is kind of the seed of just about everything else Lewis wrote afterward. Yeah. Can you expand more on that? I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. So when he got his job finally teaching at Magdalen College, Oxford in 1925, he was ambitious. He was not a Christian. He was cynical, pessimistic, arrogant, and he wanted to go to the top of his profession, which meant he needed to put out a blockbuster book and get his name on the table as some the, as one of the bright rising stars. And he thought about what to write about. And he finally settled on <laughs> the thing that he most enjoyed in his teenage years, a certain kind of story, the medieval allegorical courtly love poetry that told the story of King Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, the love triangle, but also the story of the quest for the Holy Grail. And the last great example of this kind of poetry came in the last decade of the 16th century, and Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen. And so this was the great story Lewis loved. Every, every place he found it, he loved it. In short, for your listeners, it's the story of the, the hero who goes out on a quest for the great thing at the end of the world. Along the way, he fights the unbeatable foe. He goes where the brave dare not go. He marches into hell for a heavenly cause. It's that song from The Man of La Mancha, the musical uh -huh, uh -huh. Don Quixote. And that is exactly what that, that story is. And along the way, he rescues the damsel in distress. And what he would years later discover is this is the allegory of the Christian story. He didn't know that at the time, but it really gripped him powerfully. Hmm. And he found it lots of different places. Then he found it written by a 19th century Scot by the name of George MacDonald. And the name of that book is Fantasties, or however you want to pronounce it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> but so this is what he, what he undertook. And uh, the problem with courtly love, to tell the whole story, he had to go back to the first century with the beginning of allegory. And so he, he told the story on a broad campus that canvas that covered 1500 years. <laughs> so he did have historical perspective, but, but here's the thing about it. The hero goes to the end of the world and comes back home again, a different person. That is the journey itself changes you. Now, the first book Lewis wrote after he became a Christian, he said it's an apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism. And the name of it was The Pilgrim's Regress. And it's his conversion story, but it's the idea that he built it off of Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And the regress doesn't mean he loses his faith. It means that when he goes to the cross, which is the end of the world, and finds the great thing, the pearl of great price. 
he's a changed person, but he has to go back to modeling college and teach English. That is, he doesn't mm -hmm. go off to heaven. He has to come back into the world. And so that's the story. You come back a changed person. Now, in the course of that book, he deals with all sorts of other issues that he's going to wind up writing entire manuscripts on. For instance, in the last chapter, he talks about Spencer's treatment of three of the Greek loves, storge, eros, and philia. And he will be talking about that in letters and comments to friends over the next 20 years until he finally writes the four loves. Mm. But then this, this story in which you go there and back again is the plot for all three of his science fiction novels. It's the plot for all seven of his Chronicles of Narnia. It's a story he loved above all other stories. The plot, I should say, it's the plot he loved above all others. And uh, he talks about temptation, because this is the, the, the background to allegory. In allegory, you have a visible representation of an interior feeling. Our most famous allegory in the United States is the Statue of Liberty. Liberty is not mm. a physical thing you can weigh or point to. It is an experience we have. It's an ideal. But this lady represents um, liberty. And so in the allegory of love, or I should say in the allegorical poetry that he's studying, the medievalists would have an interior battle going on between good and evil. And uh, Time magazine published a, a cover story of Lewis. He was on the cover in, I think it was 1947. And on the, in the drawing of him, there's a little devil on one of his shoulders and a little angel on the other shoulder. And that is allegory mm -hmm. in these two voices, opposite voices representing the struggle we have. It's what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter five, the desires of the flesh and the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. That's the idea. And oddly enough, the apostle Paul was one of the first people in history to write an allegory, because in that book of Galatians, he talks, he says specifically, now I'm going to tell you an allegory. And uh, it's the allegory of the Hagar right. and Sarah, yeah. in which Sarah represents freedom and Hagar represents slavery. And then he doubles it and has the mountain in Jerusalem and the mountain in Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the law, but the mountain in Jerusalem is Mount Zion is is grace. And so he, so for Lewis, the big issue was this internal struggle and the whole question of morality and ethics or right and wrong, right and wrong. And he said, no theory of, of, of ethics or morality makes any sense without temptation. Hmm. And so the, his, his, a lot of his work in the 1940s is all about temptation. The screw tape letters is not a theology of, of demonology. It's how ordinary people experience temptation. The great divorce is not a theology of heaven and hell. It's uh, an examination of how ordinary people experience temptation. Well, we could go on all night <clears throat> talking about how 
the allegory of love was sort of a springboard for Lewis for things that he would be writing for the next 30 years. Hmm. I spend three weeks on it in my Lewis course. Wow. Because <laughs> it's the That's introduction great. to yeah. everything else. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, in making that allegory, sort of set up the church fathers for near constant allegorizing and you and when i've read the venerable bead he like this is like the christian way to interpret the old testament you know and it it remains such a popular way to do thought right to 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 dramatize intellectual struggles to dramatize spiritual realities really up through the times that Lewis is concerned with, right? Through through the Renaissance. Yes. Um, if anyone was writing anything other than a legal document in the medieval period, they were writing allegories. Sermons were all allegorical. Poetry was all allegorical. I mean, there are exceptions. There are mm -hmm. exceptions. But it was the dominant right. thing. And then suddenly it disappeared. Yeah. So how do you think that? Shakespeare yeah. wiped it out. Right. He did realism. Right. So for Lewis, with someone who is so excellent at communicating Christianity and ideas to a, to a modern audience, despite the fact that he thought of himself as a dinosaur, you know, and, and all of this, mm -hmm. to have started out with allegory, which is this older, like in many ways outmoded, right? At least, at least for his audiences, to have started out through studying allegory it's such an interesting thing right that 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 this is what he was obsessed with and interested in and yet most modern audiences allegory tends to leave us cold any any ideas as to yes, as to how one led to the other? yeah i'd love to hear <laughs> he, it he learned his lesson <laughs> he published the pilgrim's regress in 1933 He'd been working on the big book for 10 years when he finally published it, but it wasn't finished when he published The Allegory of Love. I mean, when he published The Pilgrim's Regress and he learned something. The audience didn't know what in the world he was talking about. <laughs> and so at the beginning of The Allegory of Love, I think he learned that the modern world does not have access to allegory. And he discusses that in the first chapter. So he spends an entire chapter explaining how allegory works. And if any of your audience are interested in reading The Pilgrim's Regress, read the first chapter of The Allegory of Love first, hmm. and then you can make sense of the, of the Pilgrim's Regress. But he doesn't dabble in allegory again after that, except accidentally, very subtly, there are a few things that can pop up in the uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia mm -hmm. that have an allegorical dimension, but they're they're accidental. It's not a big deal with him. He he couldn't help himself, and most people get it, and you don't even notice that they're allegory. You just you just you grasp the idea, right? Well, you mentioned there and back again, and so that kind of gives me an inroad to, to ask this other pressing question that I have that I think you deal with very well, very interestingly in the book. Plenty of scholars, you know, have, have chipped away at, at the myth that Tolkien was never influenced by anyone else but himself and, you know, pre 
1100 you know english and 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 then later norse myth literature but but the myth endures right that, that tolkien's a bandersnatch right to use Dan and Dan mm-hmm. words but what did you find out in your research regarding lewis's own influence on the hobbit and lord of the rings well tolkien had a notoriously difficult time writing he loved to write but he had a hard time finishing things and he would get into a story and he wouldn't know where it was going and this was the case with the hobbit and we've there's the famous story of how he started it. He wrote on the back of an exam paper in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he didn't know what a hobbit was. And he he created a world. And well, he already had the world. He slipped them into a, a precinct of Middle Earth, but he didn't have a plot. He didn't know what was going on. And at that time, Lewis and Tolkien were meeting every Monday morning at the Eastgate Hotel in Oxford. The East Gate is about halfway between Magdalen College and Merton College, though at this time, Tolkien hadn't gone to Merton College yet. He was way over at Pembroke, which, so it was, he had a, a farther distance to walk, let's put it that way. Mm. And they would, they would talk, and by, by the time of Lewis's conversion to theism, he was already reading the stories that were included in Tolkien's Silmarillion, the mythology of, of Middle-earth. Well, it's, it's part mythology, it's part legend, it's part saga, mm-hmm. it's part chronicles. And he sort of goes through that historical development. It's, it's an amazing thing. But he had a hard time finishing those stories. In fact, the Silmarillion was still unfinished when he died. And he was... he. Whereas Lewis loved that medieval quest story, Tolkien loved the Norse sagas, and they all ended in despair, desolation, doom, destruction, and death. (laughs) There are no happy endings. It's just ghastly. They all end in, in just terrible situations. And so that's the kind of story he he loved. It worked on him, gave gave him a pang. Lewis liked the happy ending. And so with The Hobbit, he does something different from what he does in all his other stories. The Hobbit goes there to the end of the world on the great quest, and he's changed in the course of the journey and comes back a different Hobbit. I think Tolkien got the story from Lewis, who was writing, who had written The Pilgrim's Regress and was working on his allegory of love while they were meeting every morning and telling each other what they were writing and what they were working on. That's, we don't have a smoking gun, but we do have the smell of gunpowder. Yeah. I mean, that smell of gunpowder gets stronger as we get to the Lord of the Rings, right? Well, with the Lord um, of the Rings, as... okay, a few years pass. The Hobbit gets published. The The publisher likes it. It it goes into several editions. It It's still in print. Was it published in 1937, 38, sometime around in there, right after The Allegory of Love came out? And uh, the publisher wanted another one. And Tolkien said, well, why don't you publish the Silmarillion? And the publisher said, 
No, <laughs> we want another Hobbit story. So he started writing another Hobbit story and Bilbo's party and Bilbo disappeared. And that's as far as he got. He stalled. He didn't know where Bilbo was going. He had no idea what the ring was. No idea at all. And he just didn't have a plot. And so it sat. The same month he stopped writing, or he'd, he'd paused, Lewis was writing to his friend Owen Barfield, who lived in London. And they didn't see much of each other from the time Barfield moved to London until the war. So for, for a decade, they only saw each other maybe once a year when they went on an Easter hike, 50-mile hike. So anyway, they but they stayed in touch. They wrote, and and Barfield wanted a literary career, but he 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 didn't achieve that. So he was a lawyer in in London, and he had written up a, a play based on an old Greek myth. And Lewis wrote to him, "We need somebody to write a story based on the old Germanic Norse saga." of the Nibelungen lead. Now, the Nibelungen lead is a story of a, a dwarf who built, who stole the gold from the Rhine maidens and fashioned a ring of power by which he could rule the world if only he would forswear love and everybody wants the ring and it's got dragons and giants and oh, a, a, a sword that was broken and has to be reforged and and on and on and on and on. Wagner did a retelling of it, and it's it's the greatest opera series in opera history. Wagner's Ring, Das Rheingold, Die Walkure, Siegfried, and Gotterdammerung. These four operas. Well, lo and behold, Tolkien suddenly realizes what the ring is. It's a ring of power by which you can rule the world. <laughs> and and so I'm suggesting that, that Lewis is the one who urged Tolkien to take advantage of that old story and refashion it for Frodo. Again, we it's not a smoking gun, but it is evidence. Yeah. And yeah. that is the month that Tolkien started writing and yeah. wrote furiously. He, he, he then found out, I think Gandalf knew what the ring was before Tolkien did. <laughs> but anyway, that's my, that's my argument. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that you put it is very convincing because you allude to the precise letters that are being written by Lewis during, during those, during those dates, particularly to, to Barfield, which maybe we should mention Barfield briefly here because I think this is another this is another thing that you're a brave soul <laughs> is is worth is <laughs> always you have to be to, to talk about Barfield right we haven't yet done this we've we've done this podcast for three seasons and we still haven't done Barfield on the things Friday hour but uh, it sounds like you could exonerate us for that <laughs> well uh, I, I will I will exonerate you but others will curse you right um, right I like Barfield. I just we just haven't put something together. So yeah, he's he's very important person for Lewis in the twenties, before Lewis becomes a believer. They were writing poetry together. They were encouraging one another. They were great friends, and they were deep, deep friends until Lewis's death. 
And Barfield was Lewis's executor, most importantly, his literary executor. So you could not do anything with Lewis without Barfield's permission since coming of age and really a new direction in his life. Douglas Gresham, Lewis's stepson, who with his brother David inherited the Lewis estate, took charge of that. And then now it's all managed by the C.S. Lewis Company. And anyone who wants to quote Lewis needs to get permission from the C.S. Lewis Company. So I I wrote letters and, and went through identifying all the quotations I made for my three volumes. And, wow. and you negotiate all of that. But anyway, all of that was done through Barfield in the 60s and 70s. So he's a critical person and came to be identified with, with Lewis. And, you know, those that intimate relationship, Lewis had the Barfield relationship in the 20s, and then he had the Tolkien relationship. And they were two different relationships. Barfield was always the closer friend. Tolkien was more the literary friend. And in a famous letter to his his oldest friend, Arthur Greaves, perhaps making him, you know, reassuring him. He had, he had just met Hugo Dyson. And he said, now, now Dyson's a great fellow, but he's a friend of the second order, <laughs> like Tolkien. He's not a friend of the first order, like you and Owen Barfield. <laughs> uh, and so he, Lewis recognized, we all of our friends aren't don't have the same intimacy of relationship with us. But anyway, he, he had that close relationship, but they disagreed profoundly on theology. And, and Barfield took up anthroposophy, which is a philosophical quasi-religious outlook that was developed in the 19, well, at the end of World War I, I suppose, and into the 1920s by Rudolf Steiner, who had been a theosophist. And Lewis explained it to several of other friends in letters as as just a modern form of Gnosticism. So, so Barfield was not a Christian. He did believe in God. He was a spiritual person, a morally upright person, good company. But I argue that he was never really one of the inklings. We only have a couple of documented cases of him attending a, an Inklings meeting. But remember, the Inklings met in Oxford and Barfield worked in London. They met in the middle of the week when Barfield was working. And so he he would not normally have, have been there to be in an Inklings meeting. Barfield himself said he never heard any reading of any of Tolkien's work. So none of The Hobbit in the 30s, none of The Lord of the Rings in the 40s. And we've, we've got evidence of two meetings that he attended. And Barfield himself never spoke of the Inklings as us. Uh, he always spoke of the Inklings as them. And they were Lewis's friends. They weren't mm. his friends. So he didn't we, we don't have any evidence that I've been able to find. There might be some. I, I, I'm not the last word in, on this. Nobody is. But any correspondence between Barfield and the other Inklings. And the other Inklings, people like Neville Coghill, Robert Havard, James Dundas Grant, 
Lord David Cecil. In their lists of people who were involved in the Inklings, Owen Barfield is never mentioned. And when Lewis told Charles Williams about the Inklings, he said, we're a group of people who like to write and we're all Christians. And so I think it's highly, un, it goes on and on. This is another one of those things that goes on and on. And, 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 and Barfield didn't like the, the Inklings theology. He called it romantic theology. That was a term mm-hmm. actually for Charles Williams theology. And right. Lewis, Lewis didn't care for romantic theology, but Barfield writes as though all of the Inklings believe Charles Williams theology, which suggests that Barfield wasn't very well acquainted with what all the Inklings thought or what their faith was. So I, I think it's it's highly unlikely that we could should really speak of him as an inkling. He's very important mm-hmm. for Lewis, extremely important. And but he didn't care for Lewis's apologetic writing because they they had entirely different concepts of of religion in fact he didn't like the line the witch in the wardrobe when lewis wrote it he lewis wanted to dedicate it to barfield's daughter lucy (laughs) and the barfields were horrified by this book it was they were going to wear fur coats which meant they'd killed animals (laughs) and and the very idea of children getting in a wardrobe, they could be, they could suffocate or something <laughs> awful would happen. And Lewis needed to, he, it was, it was a bad, bad story. So, so he didn't, Lewis didn't get any more encouragement from Barfield than he did from Tolkien on, on the, the Chronicles of Narnia. But anyway, that, that's, that's my take on, on Barfield. Extremely important for Lewis, but probably not one of the Inklings. Right. Well, as long as we're exploding myths or, or, you know, exploding possibilities that maybe are not as well supported as has sometimes been said, currently, it's very difficult to discuss the Chronicles of Narnia and not hear Michael Ward's thesis that each book is kind of allegorically you know, corresponding with, with one of the seven medieval planets and you take what, while like, you know, definitely saying, and I agree that Ward's book is brilliant. You point out some difficulties with, with some of Ward's arguments about with, with his seven heavens and, and Narnia thesis. What are, what are some of the difficulties with Ward's argument? Well, f- first let's point out what's, what's very helpful about his, his book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He does discuss things that Lewis says about the medieval cosmology and Mm -hmm. Lewis wrote about it in a number of places. The most for the average reader, we're probably most familiar with his science fiction trilogy in which he uses the medieval understanding of the heavens rather than space as, as part of the plot and the idea that each heavenly body has an Oyarsa or in European theology, an archangel responsible for it. So he does a good job of of giving an over, overview of where Lewis discusses that overtly. And so in the in the science fiction, also in his his one of the last books he did, the discarded image, 
But the discarded image was really the publication of his lecture notes on the medieval worldview. What was the medieval world like? On br brilliant book. I think it's still in print. I think the discarded image is still in print. Oh, yeah. And uh, and then he also points out some of Lewis's treatment in, in poetry of of the the planets. And that's all very well done and commendable. Then he makes a shift and says that each of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia represents one of the seven planets in the medieval cosmos. And it's sort of a jump, sort of a logical jump. And he says that they aren't overtly mentioned, but the overall ethos or ambiance of the novel it gives you a, a spirit. I can't remember exactly which word he uses there, but that, that, that idea, an atmosphere, something like that, of the planet. And so, and I've forgotten which one he uses for which, because the part of the problem is, you know, one book represents Mars, the, the god of war, because there's warfare in the book. And the problem with that is you've got war in multiple books. Mm -hmm. And you, you, the first one represents Jove, Jupiter, Zeus, because of the magisterial atmosphere. And we see that most with Father Christmas because he's jovial. And so Jove is jovial. Well, you can go to the, the horse and his boy and find a more magisterial figure in the king who mm -hmm. is so jovial. And so it's it's problematic at that level. You can find elements, but it's almost like a, a fortune cookie. You can sort of see it if, you're, if you've been told it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, but the biggest problem, I think, is that to construct something like that, you have to construct it from the beginning. Once you've gotten into the series and have gotten to book four, it's too late to say, oh, I think I'll write each one of these books in such a way that they represent one of the planets, because you've got three that have already been published. So you've got to do it from the very beginning, and we know that Lewis did not plan a seven-book series when he started writing. He just had one book to write, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it was a one-off and that was it. But as he was finishing it up, he thought, oh, I've got an idea for another book, a creation story. And he started working on that, and it, it just wouldn't go anywhere. It eventually became The Magician's Nephew, but he had trouble with that. He had a lot of trouble with that. And I think it was the last book that he finished writing. Hmm. Uh, he actually finished the last book in the series before mm -hmm. he, he finished writing The Magician's Nephew. So it wasn't really, an, so he, he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in 1948, but it wasn't until 1952, and he was into his fourth book, that he knew he was going to do seven books, because he, he then had had it all worked out. But he didn't have it from the beginning. And it's a problem trying to fix it as you get through it. I speak as one who has written a series of books he did not plan on writing. 
<laughs> and one of the problems my poor publisher has is how to sell it because it doesn't have a name. Hmm. Tolkien has a three-volume series that, that's called The Lord of the Rings, and each volume has a title. I've got a three-volume series. Each volume has a title, but I don't have a name for the overall biography because nah. we didn't decide to do a three-volume biography until the first book was already out. Right. So, so I, I I don't think I don't think you've really got strong grounds for arguing, but but it is a masterful piece of of imagination Absolutely. on Ward's part. And Lewis himself said, well, just because the author didn't intend it doesn't mean that a reader won't find something there that the author did not intend. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's about its, its uh, reader response is, yeah. is the idea, that kind of criticism. And yeah. so, but, but I disagree with, with that the conclusion that he drew. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I find your counter argument pretty compelling. I kind of always felt that way about Ward's thesis, but everyone yeah, it's seems the power to of, of what into everybody it. says. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sort of like, it's well, they all know more than me. So I guess I'm just not, especially because the moon plays such a prominent part in multiple, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and also this is a different world with different planets in the first yeah I, I, it's it's <laughs> oh uh, you noticed that did you <laughs> but yeah it's i mean a different it, world yeah not our solar system it doesn't quite yeah it's it's uh, but but like again i mean he does draw attention to something that was very much on lewis's mind that often isn't on modern readers mind so in that way i think you're absolutely right it's valuable and it's and and word is brilliant and 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 writes very well i think his his less helpful comment you know that that's an interesting thesis but i think his less helpful comment is that it's not really about aslan because aslan is only prominent in the first one or and maybe mm -hmm. the first one in the, in the last one but aslan is there in all right. of them, and he's the driving force even when you don't see him. Well, I want to end with, with a question or two just about we've been talking this this season a little bit more about the creative process, trying to hew to the spirit of the Inklings as a kind of creative group. I admit that I tend to have a lot of envy of the authors that I really admire, like Lewis. And, and before reading these biographies, I was under this vague impression that Lewis is able to write so much because he was unmarried with no pressing family <laughs> obligations. And that because he was a bachelor, he must have had tons of leisure time in which to write. Why was I wrong? Well, he had Mrs. Moore. And Mrs. Uh -huh. Moore, if I can borrow from another literary work, regarded Lewis as her house elf. In fact, one time <laughs> she said, well, Jack, it's like having another servant. And she thought that was clever. And she did. She interrupted him. Whatever he was doing, she would call him every 15 minutes. And Warney, Lewis's brother, just got furious about that. But we find Lewis talking himself about it in the screw tape letters. Remember, the patient gets very irritated 
by his mother, who's always interrupting mm -hmm. him just when he most wants some peace and quiet and trying to accomplish something. So I think he's transparent at that moment. But yes, he had to learn how to write at a moment's notice. And, and this was one of the things I learned from the students of Lewis. They said that you could interrupt him and have a discussion with him. And as you were reading, leaving the room, his pen was back on the page writing and he could uh, pick up immediately where he had left off. And not everybody can do that. I, I have friends who say they need a block of at least four hours to be able to write. Now, I have learned just over time how to write in small amounts of time, but it, but it is a skill that's learned. And I think Lewis learned it in almost a persecution context, <laughs> but but he also had to get his ideas out. He had to get them on the page on the page. So it was different from a bachelor writing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just go, kind of going along with that. I I was also always under the impression that Lewis just kind of thought of an idea and wrote it really quickly at tremendous speed. Right. But, but you give a, a slightly more nuanced view of, of that. In, in well, it depends on what he was writing. He wrote the Pilgrim's Regress in two weeks. Wow. And that's a real challenge. I mean, to write a book in two weeks, that's, that's pretty good, mm -hmm. uh, but he'd been thinking about it. Yeah. He'd been thinking about, it and he knew his story. So what he's doing, he's, he's giving his, his testimony and he's also been living in the world of allegory for 10 years. And so that was easy. If you decided to sit down and write your testimony and you had two weeks to do it without interruption because he did it on vacation when he was in Ireland away from Mrs. Moore. <laughs> and so he had this big block of time where he could do it. But now his Eng Oxford History of English Literature, he did the volume on the 16th century excluding drama. He wasn't going to try to tackle everything and Shakespeare and right. Marlowe and Johnson. Needed more than one volume for that. That took years to write. That took almost 20 years to write. And he didn't work on it all the time. He, it was like Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. He'd work on it a little bit and he had interruptions for a few years at a time. So it, it just depended on what kind of writing it was and how much research it took versus imagination. And some of the things he did were lectures, Abolition of Man, the Mere Christianity, a series of short radio talks. So he wrote in different ways, depending on the kind of book it was and the audience. But, but what we can learn from Lewis, well, we can learn a lot of things, but for a writer, know your audience. Right. And <clears throat> the, the Pilgrim's Regress helped him learn that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he missed his audience on that one. That's why he rewrote it and published it as Surprised by Joy. It's the hmm. same book, though you hmm. wouldn't know it to look yeah. at it. It's yeah. his testimony. Well, touching on that, the sort of know your audience, I guess the last thing I'd, I'd like to kind of ask you is just in terms of your own field and your own scholarly concerns about addressing questions that non-Christians are asking, 
Uh, and you've been talking about how Lewis, obviously, is such an important figure, right, in, in the realm of apologetics. And he also was able to sort of understand the questions that non-Christians were asking about the gospel. How have those questions changed as, as far as you're concerned since, since Lewis was writing, or have they changed? Well, <clears throat> some years ago, I remember, oh, I guess it was back in the 90s when post-modernity was the big hot topic mm -hmm. and relativism, you know, everybody was talking about relativism. Now it's normal. It was hot then. Now we live with it all the time. Mm -hmm. But I, I said that in, in a certain way, Lewis had an easier time of it in writing Mere Christianity because of World War II. There was no relativism during World War II. Everybody knew Hitler was bad. There was no talk of from a certain point of view. I mean, Hitler was bad. Mm -hmm. and throughout his radio broadcasts, in almost every broadcast, the, the first three three sets of, of, of talks, he's constantly reminding his radio audience about the Nazis because his whole argument is that there's we have this sense of right and wrong, and it's not just something we're taught. We know it. We experience it. And it's a value. It's objective. It's real. But it's not physical. And so where does it come from? So his whole argument is this, this idea that right and wrong comes from someplace. By the way, I would argue that mere Christianity is another telling of Lewis's testimony mm. without saying in the 1920s, I was struggling with where the idea of right and wrong came from. And I was coming up with different ideas. And dadgummit, I had to come up with there's, there's <laughs> some sort of mind out there. And then I had to decide what kind of mind. And I thought, well, is it pantheism? Is it this? Is it that? So in essence, he's giving us in mere Christianity what he what he came up with. But the questions are always changing, and there's not one central question. Lewis was not a one-size-fits-all. An example of this, Lewis was not at all impressed with the design argument, the idea we look at the universe and we see the complexity and it must have been a designer. He, he's, he said, no, I think you can come up with some other answers besides that. He, he believed in the designer, and that was central to his theology. God wasn't just this platonic thing. He was his personal being who created. Now, the the irony is one of Lewis's one of the students who used to come to the Socratic Club was Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew grew up to be the most strident atheist philosopher of religion in the English speaking world. And his textbook on the philosophy of religion, which took the position that God does not exist, went through, oh, many, many, many editions until the, from the, what, the mid-50s until 2000. And then in a letter to the editor of a philosophy journal, he was writing about some, you know, obtuse idea. And in a PS, he said, by the way, readers may be interested to know that I now believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> and what convinced him was the design argument. Hmm. And he said, there's just no adequate explanation other than that there's a God 
who's responsible for it all. So different people respond to different ideas because their questions are different. Right. And often their questions are very personal. They're not just general intellectual curiosity. There's usually something deep behind it. Mm. Yeah. Listen for the question. Well, I, I would love to just sit here all night and just pick your brain about Lewis. I've been enjoying your books so much, but Halpo, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, and, thank you and, for, and for inviting spending this me. time it's talking been, with us. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, what's what's next for you? What's what are you what are you embarking on next in terms of your scholarship or research or writing? Well, I'm I'm not sure. I've got I've got half a dozen ideas. And related to Lewis, there's a, a book on his apologetics I'm interested in doing, but I've got some ideas I want to flesh out for my myself on some apologetic ideas for our current age. Mm -hmm. And I, I also write on Edgar Allan Poe, who oddly enough had the same spiritual journey as C.S. Lewis. Oh, interesting. And the same, they were dealing with exactly the same issues, Lewis, Poe driven by right and wrong. How do we explain that? And justice, the whole idea of justice, that's is, is there justice in the universe? And that's how he came to invent the mystery stories. But anyway, hmm. I've, I've got another book on Poe I need to write that deals with his spiritual journey. And we need to have you back on sometime to talk about Poe and C.S. Lewis, because that is fascinating. And yeah. Well, uh, the, the connection there would be Poe and Dorothy L. Sayers. Mm -hmm. Sayers was a great Poe scholar. Yeah. Lewis quoted Poe from time to time, but, but Lewis didn't like mystery stories. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, Hal, thank you again for, for joining us. And, and, and listeners, please do check out the, I don't know, Lewis biography trilogy, since we don't have a name for, for the three of us. I think they're calling it now. I think they're going by the first volume and just calling it Becoming C.S. Lewis. Okay, so please do check out Becoming C.S. Lewis. Do yourself a favor. It's it's so enjoyable and erudite. So, yeah, thank you all again, and, and we'll see you next time. All this encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent fan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>